Gospel of John with me, chapter chapter two. Outline here. And uh, we are <coughs> trekking along in John, and um, we will finish chapter two this morning. Next week, uh, Paul Arslan will be with us again. He will be bringing the word. Um, then the week after that, we are in December, and uh, we'll have a few weeks. Uh, December before December hits, and we'll be in John 3, and then um, we'll be going to China, and then myself for the month of January. Um, you can be praying for us as we do preparations, and so uh, we'll be having some other, other teachers during the month of January. Um, but this morning we'll be done with chapter 2. Last week, uh, Jesus cleansed the temple. If you missed that, I encourage you to uh, pick up an outline over on the table, but we come to a very short section, uh, verse 23 through 25 this morning. And this section is very important, even though it's just three verses, because it's a massive shift in the Gospel of John. Um, up to this point, the focus has been on the revelation of Jesus as Messiah, comes on the scenes, present him as Messiah in all the different aspects, what it means, who is he. And we've also seen the positive response of his disciples to him. As he's revealed, his disciples respond positively to him in faith. And we've said a number of times the disciples do not arrive at a full Christian faith until after the resurrection. And yet, nevertheless, their faith is true and genuine as it's growing and progressing the more Jesus is revealed to them. Well, this morning, we come to these verses, and it's the first instance in the Gospel of John where we see people believing other than the disciples. So this is another group believing, and it's the first instance of a negative response of false faith to Jesus in the Gospel of John. And this theme of genuine, true faith versus false faith is actually a massive theme through the Gospel of John. It goes all the way through through his gospel. John's goal is believing, faith, uh, in Christ, and yet John is saying that there is such a thing as false faith. Unbelievers make professions of faith. That's what John is saying. And yet they're categorically different from, from true believers, and that's what's going on in our passage. So let's look at it. Chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. It says, now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, he came up, he cleansed the temple, and he remained there, and many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. It's only a few verses, but the, the, these verses actually form a bridge from everything we've just seen in the first two chapters about the identity of Jesus, the positive faith of the disciples. And it forms a bridge now to the next two chapters. What are the next two chapters about? It's about Nicodemus, and it's about the Samaritan woman. And these verses form a bridge and connect to those. Well, well how so? Well, look at some of these connections. Look at the very end of verse 25. It says, he knew what was in man. Chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Same word in Greek. 
Chapter 2, verse 23, talks about people believing when they saw the signs that he was doing. Look what Nicodemus says. Verse 2, no one can do these things, can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And then chapter 2, 25 says that Jesus knows what's in man. What does he say about Nicodemus? He says, you must be born again. You can see straight to his heart. He identifies the Samaritan woman, exactly what's in her heart. So this, th these, these verses here are meant to prepare us for what's coming and what is going on with the people Jesus is going to engage with. And so these verses introduce this group to us. Um, chapter 3, verses 1 to 15 gives us a specific example of these people in Nicodemus. And then the rest of chapter 3 is going to give us the true faith. What, what is their faith lacking well, what is deficient about their faith? What is true Christian faith look like? And that's what John's going to give us in the rest of chapter 3. So this morning, we're going to get two responses which expose the false faith of unbelievers. Two responses. And the first response is the response of the people to Jesus' signs. The story picks up where we left off in Jerusalem at Passover. Look at verse 23 again. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. So we encounter this, this other group. Up to this point, we've seen the disciples believing. Um, back in verse 18, the Jewish leadership rejects Jesus, and now we get this third group. It's the many. It says many believed in his name. As we're going to go through the Gospel of John, you're going to see this many, many believe, many believe. It's the crowd. Uh, they, they reappear six times through the Gospel of John. And almost every time, not every time, but almost every time, the many are said to believe it's a negative, um, negative faith. Let me give you one example. Flip over, hold your finger here, flip over to chapter 8. You see this many pop up. And here's one of the Times. Many believe. Chapter 8, verse 30. As he was saying these things, many, there it is, many believed in him. And then he engages them in verse 31. Jesus said to those who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So there's disciples, and there's those who are truly disciples. And he goes through engaging them and, and, and exposing what it means to be a disciple and, and their sin. And they resisted. Look down at verse 44. This many who believe what Jesus says about them. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Look down at verse 40, 47. The reason why you do not hear my words is that you are not from God. He's speaking of who? The many who believed in him. In our chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 23 to 25 this morning, is the first instance of these many um, through the gospel of, of John. But not only are these many said to believe, but look what it says. They believed what? In his, what? In his, well, before his signs, many believed in his name. Well, where have we seen that phrase already in the Gospel of John? It's a very significant one. Look back at chapter 1, verse 12. 
They believed in his name. Chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name. That is John's statement for what it means to be a child of God. That's what true faith looks like. You believe in his name. The idea of in means personal reliance on. And his name is his, is his character. It's his person. So that's what faith is. You believe in his name. And here you see this many believing in his name. And I think the point is that this initially looks really good. This faith looks and appears to be genuine. They are believing in his name. They appear to be his disciples. They probably think that they themselves are his disciples. They are probably even willing to confess him as Messiah. Their faith appeared to be genuine. But as we're going to go through this passage, it's going to become very clear that it was less than genuine. So you're saying, okay, Michael, well, what's wrong with their faith? It says they believe. That's what Jesus asked them to do. And it says it's in his name. Um, what's wrong? Well, what is the reason for their faith? Look at the next line. Many believed in his name when, or literally, seeing the signs that he was doing. They believed because they saw the signs. From this, we, we learn that while Jesus was in Jerusalem, he did more signs than just the cleansing of the temple. When Jesus was in Jerusalem, there are many signs that he did that John does not record. They saw the signs that he was doing, and so they, they believed in him. This is the reason for their faith. Many believed because they saw the signs. Now, the question is, is that a problem? Is it bad to believe because you saw signs? And the answer is no, not necessarily. The disciples see Back in chapter 1, verse 50, they see an instance of Jesus' comprehensive knowledge, and they believe, and Jesus affirms their faith. Think of Thomas at the very end of the gospel. What happens? He sees, he touches um, the nail prints in the hands of Jesus, and he believes, and Jesus affirms his faith. Um, there's nothing wrong necessarily with seeing signs and believing. The problem is not simply they believed in response to signs, the problem is that they had misplaced faith. Before we go on, we need to consider uh, the nature of Jesus' signs, the, the, the purpose, the function. What, what was the, the signs intended to do? And that will help us understand the right and wrong responses to them. We can see on your outline, uh, we have a few things here. The first thing is that signs are meant to stimulate faith and testify to Jesus' identity. Jesus performs signs. They're not bad. They're a good thing. They're meant to stimulate faith. The first half of the Gospel of John is organized around seven messianic signs. They were there to display the identity of Jesus. Jesus said, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. They, they testify to me. His signs are good. They testify to his identity. John 20, 31, what did John say? These signs have been written so that you might do what? You might believe. believe. John intentionally records these signs so that you would believe. So that is a function of the signs. It's a purpose of the signs. They are good. 
They're meant to call his readers to faith. But look at number two. Signs are insufficient in themselves to produce faith. Not everyone who sees and not everybody who reads the signs of Jesus in this gospel believe, right? What must happen? They have to be born again. Flip over to chapter 12, verse 37. This is the conclusion of this very first half of John. Jesus' signs ministry is done at this point. Chapter 12, 37. Our point is that they're insufficient. They cannot produce faith in themselves. Verse 37 says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. In other words, they should have, but they didn't. Many, most that saw his signs did not believe. They're insufficient in themselves. Number three, signs hold people accountable to believe and heighten the guilt of those who reject. Stay here in, in this, this passage. Look back up at verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from the people. He hid himself. No more public ministry. It's done. They have not received him. They've rejected him. It's over. And though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled in their judgment. Those who are not moved to faith, true faith, who have witnessed these signs, who have read these signs, bear a greater guilt than those who have not. That's the purpose of signs. Number four. This is the key point. Signs are not ends in themselves. They are meant to point beyond themselves to the glory of Christ, his person, and his work. Look what John Calvin says. Miracles do indeed assist the children of God in arriving at the truth, but it does not amount to the actual believing. When they admire the power of God, so as merely to believe that it is true, but not to subject themselves wholly to it. In other words, it's not enough to simply admire Christ as powerful, or just conclude he is God, or he is great by his signs. The signs are meant to drive us to embrace Christ for all that he is, for all that he has come to accomplish and that he offers. Leon Morris said that in the signs he exposes facet after facet of human need, showing at the same time human inadequacy and Jesus' all-sufficiency. That's what the signs do. They're illustrative. They're not just powerful, miraculous works. They're illustrative. They're meant to point people to himself and what he has come to offer. And the disciples are the model for us for the proper response to signs. What happens after they go the first sign in Cana? Jesus turns water into wine. It says Jesus manifested his glory and the disciples believed. Well, why? Well, because they saw his glory. Chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. That's the not just faith in signs. The signs are meant to point your eyes to the glory of Christ. Well, what's the glory of Christ? Well, the glory of Christ is his person and his work put on public display. And it's his person. All that he is is God and his work. All that he is is Savior on public displays, recognizing that he's not just a miracle worker. He's a Savior. 
So that's the purpose and function of, of signs. And the question is, what's wrong with the faith of these in our passage? Go back there in chapter 2. It says they believed because they saw the signs. Well, if that's all that John told us, we wouldn't know that there's anything necessarily wrong with their faith. But the context and Jesus' words are going to show us that their, their faith is, is deficient here. And as we're going to move through the gospel, it's going to become clear that they're not led to Christ because of what the signs illustrate about him. They simply receive him as a miracle worker. They're more preoccupied with the signs than the ones than the one that the signs point to. Um, look over at an illustration of this, chapter 6. He's just turned, uh, fed the 5,000 with a couple loaves of bread. <clears throat> look what he says. This is very interesting. He's just fed them, and they're coming back to him for breakfast now. Said, man, why don't you do that miracle again? Chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. In a very real sense, if you have not seen the glory of Christ, if you're not driven to pursue him for the right reason, you have not actually seen the sign. He says, you haven't even seen the sign. He said, well, yeah, we did. We saw you feed the 5,000. He said, no, you didn't. You didn't see the sign. You missed it because you weren't driven to me. They were preoccupied with his miraculous works and not him. This same group resurfaces in chapter 4. Look there, chapter 4, verse 45. Chapter 4, 45, it says, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. It's not a good welcome, though. Look having seen all the signs that he was doing in Jerusalem at the feast. That's why they welcomed him. Here's his sign worker. For they too had gone to the feast. They might even confess Jesus is a great teacher. They might even confess that he's come from God, but they have not had eyes to behold his glory. He's truly come to offer. Look what Nicodemus says, chapter 3, verse, verse 2. It's a pretty good confession right here. Jesus comes to Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher. Come from God. For no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. He's, he's concluding, Jesus, you're a teacher. You have teaching worth listening to, and you're come from God. That's a pretty good confession. I can get you into most churches nowadays. But Jesus sees right to his heart. You must be born again. It's not enough. So this crowd here is not in the same category as the rejecting Jewish leadership that we just saw. And yet at the same time, they do not truly believe. Look what David Crowley said. The many never saw past the sign to the glory which Jesus manifested. Their response, though better than rejection, is still short of what Jesus asked them. The two positive portrayals of believing discussed above Describe those believing as children of God, chapter 1, verse 12, and as beholding Jesus' glory, chapter 2, 11. But neither of those qualifiers is used here. These people believe simply because they saw signs, surface level. Chapter 3, verse 7 will tell us that they, they must be born again. Something must happen for them to see beyond the sun. So I just pause here and say, so is the many, much of the faith in the church today in the evangelical world. Many confess Jesus as Christ, 
might even call him God. They gladly receive him as a miracle worker who can fix their broken marriage or um, help their job loss or fix their um, sicknesses, whatever it is. But they do not want him for all that he is. Just think about what it must have been like. I mean, here's a man who could heal any disease. He could supply an endless supply of food. He can keep you from dying and all of your loved ones from dying. He can provide such that you can continue to enjoy this life of yours now forever. This is Joel Osteen. I mean, this is exactly what it is. You can have it now and forever. Um, it's all you, all you need. And um, that's what this crowd, crowd wants. That's all they desire from this Christ. And the reason is because they have not come to know the depths of their sin and their greatest problem. What is their greatest problem? What John's going to tell us. Look at John chapter 3, verse 20. What is the true problem of these people? Why don't they want Jesus for what he really is? Why don't they see his glory? Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Does his works be exposed? They don't want to see their true problem. What's their true problem? Look down at verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son does not see life. But the wrath of God remains on them. The wrath remains. That's the problem with man. That is our greatest need. It is not having my sicknesses cured and my supplies met. That is not what Jesus came. He came for this problem. Holy God that is wrathful towards those are in sin against him. These do not know the glories of Christ. They don't know the pleasures that he offers. Well, why? So they don't have to see his glory because they don't see their sin. They don't see their sin because they don't want to come to the light unless their sin be exposed. They're content with their lives. They would gladly have Jesus tacked on to make their life a little bit better. Serve my desires. Make my life a bit more comfortable, Jesus, please. But they have no desire to make Jesus their life. They have no desire to depend on him as their only hope. To submit all their desires to him. They don't see their biggest problems, the wrath of God. And they don't want to come near the light unless they have to admit they really are this bad. No thank you. So that's what's wrong with the, the crowd. That's what's wrong with much of the faith. Today. But if John stopped here, we might not be so confident in what we've just said. Um, how do we know that this is what's going on with the crowd? How do we know that this is what's going on in their hearts? We can't see their hearts. It's true. Jesus can. Look at the next response. The response of Jesus to the people's faith. Look at verse 24 to 25. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. These verses make it clear that Jesus sees right through their profession faith. He doesn't buy it. 
Verse 24 tells us his action. It says, Jesus did not entrust himself to them. It says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself. Um, there's a play, play on words going on here in the, in the Greek. Um, it says, many episteusen in his name. You hear, you hear that pistis word group, the believe word group. But Jesus was not episteuing himself to them. He was not believing himself to them. So that's the idea. They believed him, but he didn't believe them. <laughs> they, they trusted him, but he didn't trust them. Jesus isn't fooled by their profession. But it goes a little bit beyond this. It doesn't simply say that he doesn't trust them, but he doesn't entrust himself to them. What does it mean to entrust something? When entrust something to someone is to give something to someone because you reckon them to be true, reckon them to be reliable. I entrusted my daughter to the childcare workers because I reckon them to be true and reliable, and I expect them to do the right thing with her. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Jesus entrusts himself to people means that he gives himself to people based on their true faith. But here, he does not reciprocate by giving himself to them. He doesn't come and give all of that, all of himself to them. He doesn't receive them as disciples. He doesn't give himself and what he has come to offer to them. Well, that's true. There's also a massive implication here that he does give himself to those who truly believe him. What does chapter 10 say? He says he is the good shepherd, and the good shepherd does what? He lays down his who are the sheep? It's those who trust him. He gives himself fully to us who trust him. That's an amazing implication. We're going to flesh that out in a little bit. Look here at the at the next at the next point. Um, and this is just audacious of anyone to do. Um, I mean, you hear people commonly say, "You can't see my heart. Who are you to judge?" That's true. None of us can see into hearts. All of us need to wait around for fruit. But not Jesus. He sees straight to the heart, but no one else, no one else can see. Look at the next two verses, which give us the reason he doesn't entrust himself. Why doesn't he give himself and all that he's come to offer to these believers? It's because he possesses knowledge about all people. 24b tells us that his knowledge is comprehensive. It says he was not entrusting himself to them on account of the fact that he knows everyone. He has knowledge of pantas. That's every single person is the idea. All. All people. We've already seen an example of this displayed when he talked to who? Remember Nathaniel? Before Philip ever called Nathaniel? What does Jesus say to him? Before he ever called you, I saw you and I know in your heart. I know you're a true Israelite. That's what he says. His comprehensive knowledge of every person. But then the next verse tells us it's not just every single person, but he knows the deepest parts of the hearts of every single person. His knowledge penetrates in the depth of the human heart. Look at verse 25. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He doesn't need help. He doesn't need someone to bear witness like we do. He doesn't need to wait around for fruit. He sees immediately. It's literally he himself was knowing 
what was in man. He didn't begin at some time knowing, and he doesn't end in his knowing. He, he was just knowing what was in man. He always has. And there's two nuances here. He knows what's in the heart of mankind in general. It says he himself knows what is in man. What is that? What's in mankind in general? Look at chapter 3, verse 19. This is the judgment. Light is coming to the world, and people loved darkness. Literally, anthropoid. Men, mankind, love darkness. So he knows what's in the heart of anthropos, in the man. What is it? Love of darkness. But I think there's another nuance here that goes, that's more appropriate. It's not just he has a general knowledge of the depravity of man. Well, why? Well, because he's talking specifically about who? About these believers in verse 23. He knows what's in the heart of man, of specific people. He knows the particular depths of the heart of each person. So verse 25 ends, he knows himself, he himself knows what was in Anthropo and Anthropos and a man. Chapter 3, verse 1. And there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, and he sees right to his heart. Specifically, each person. When he sees this crowd, he sees the nature of their faith with crystal clarity. So let's think about some implications from this. It's waiting, but man, this is good news. You say, well, how is this good news? Look at a few things. Number one, it is in this that Jesus manifests his glory as God, because only God knows the heart. Over and over and over in the Old Testament, we see that it is God and God alone that knows the human heart. And Jesus here knows it in depth, perfect. He is God. We got a few minutes. Can I need some help looking some passage up? Can somebody look up 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 39? You can get that, Paul. Proverbs 15, verse 11. All right, Chris. And then Jeremiah 17, 10. Right? Jeremiah 17, 10. And there's a ton of others we could have gone to, but listen to this. This is Yahweh, Old Testament knowledge of the heart. 1 Kings 8. 39. Then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. Proverbs fifteen eleven. Hell and destruction are before the Lord. So how much more the hearts of the sons of men? Seventeen ten. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. I give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. That's good. We could have gone a ton of other. He searches the hearts. He knows the depths of our hearts, even what we don't even see. He sees the motives, the desires, the, the beliefs, the thoughts, every bit. And it is through this that the glory of Jesus as God incarnate is put on display. We should worship him for this. Number two. Since he has such perfect knowledge of the hearts of man, he always responds correctly to those who come to him. He always responds correctly to those who come to him. He never wrongly withholds himself from true believers. And he always refuses to give himself to false believers and seeks to expose their false faith. He never gets it wrong. Throughout John, we're going to see a 
Jesus responds in a number of ways uh, to people that come to him, and it can seem random, it can seem inconsistent. Jesus, why do you respond that way to the disciples and respond this way to this person? It doesn't make sense. Well, this is the reason. Why does he tell Nicodemus you must be born again? It's because he sees right into his heart. He knows perfectly. D.A. Carson said his knowledge of man's hearts is profound and accounts in part for the diversity of his approaches to individuals in the gospel. We can go to a number of places, but we do not have time. He sees the incompleteness and genuineness of the disciples' faith. Chapter 1, verse 50, he sees the sinister, unbelieving request of the Jewish leadership in chapter 2, verse 18, and now he sees the unregenerate faith of these here. He knows exactly what they need to hear, and he gives it to them. So that truth is meant to awaken those who are casual with Jesus. It's meant to awaken those to see he's not fooling around, but it's also a massive comfort to true believers. It's a massive comfort. We say, well, how so, Michael? It's because he sees every spark of true faith in your heart. He sees every flicker of genuine love to him. And it's a flicker often. And he sees it. And he always responds to it. Now, love is fickle, like Peter's. And yet, it's real. I love him. I trust him. And yet it is up, it's down. My only hope is not that I have a great commitment to Christ, but that he's committed to me and he sees it. And because he sees that genuine faith, he will give himself to me. He's committed to us. Look over an example of this. Look at chapter 1. Chapter 1, chapter 21, chapter 21 of John, chapter 21, verse 15. Peter has just denied Christ three times. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He now comes to them. You know, they're fishing. He reveals himself on the beach. Peter comes to him. You know this conversation right after breakfast. Look what happens. Look at what Peter appeals to. Chapter 21, verse 15. They finished breakfast, and Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What does he say? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He appeals to his knowledge. Second time, he says, John, do you love me? Simon, son of John. He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Verse 17, it says to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. In other words, Peter's hope is not the greatness of his love, but the thoroughness of Christ's knowledge of his heart. That's what he casts himself on. And often, I don't see much in here. I know I do. But Lord, you know, that's my only hope. That's my comfort. He sees every bit of it. And he's committed to those who do. His knowledge enables him to meet us exactly where we're at. His knowledge enables him to meet Peter exactly where he's at with exactly what he needs. And he gives it to him. And he does that for us, for every one of us. He gives himself. He entrusts himself to us. And because he knows our hearts, he will meet us with reproof, with correction, with exposing sin, with comfort, with whatever it is. Is good, good news. Number three, this truth that Jesus knows it all and always responds rightly to those who come to him ought to drive us to confession of our sin. 
thought that Jesus knows it all. Every thought, every desire, every word and action is terrifying. <laughs> it's terrifying. And when unbelievers hear this truth, what do they do? They run, right? They don't come to the light. Why? They don't want to be exposed. They don't want to have to admit that they really are that bad. But what does a believer do? This thought that Christ knows it all, this light of his total knowledge in my heart, what do I do? There's only one response. What is it? 1 John 1.9. Go there with me. I know you know the verse, but we're going to be in 1 John for a little bit. 1 John 1.9. What do I do? He knows it all. There's only one response. And it is good. Good news. 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Come to him. Confess your sins. He knows it. There's no hiding. That's what it means to embrace him, not for science, but for what he's come to offer. Embrace him. Confession. That he's ready and willing and always will forgive. Number four. This truth is meant not only to drive us to confession, it's meant to motivate us to come often to him depending on his substitutionary work for us on the cross. He not only knows it all, but he's died for it all. Look over at chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And look at this. He is the propitiation for our sins. He didn't say sin. He was not just a propitiation for your sin nature, for sin in general. What was he a propitiation for? For your sins. All of them. Every one. How could he do that? It's because he knows them. Every one of them he knows them. And he's died for every one of them. This truth is meant to drive us to cast ourselves on him. And he knows every one of them. And he doesn't just know every one of them as judge. He's taken the judgment for every one of them on himself. Cast yourself on him. That's what his knowledge is meant to do. This truth enables us to slay the devil with his own sword, as Martin Luther did. You know the story? The devil comes to Martin Luther and says, oh, you're a sinner. What does Martin Luther does do? He says, yes, Christ died for sinners. He takes the very sword and accusations of the devil and uses it against the devil himself. This truth allows us and enables us to do that. Yes, we're sinners. Christ died for sinners and for every single sin I committed because he knows them all. That's what daily faith in the gospel looks like. He sees our hearts, which trust him alone to deal with them. Look over at chapter 3 of 1 John. Chapter 3, verse 19. Say, how does this all tie with his comprehensive knowledge? Well, here it is. Chapter 3, 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, accuse us rightly of guilt, sin that is in there, look at this, God is greater than our heart. He's the final judge. You hear Paul, who is to condemn? God justifies. But what? And he knows 
He knows every sin, but he also knows the blood of Christ has covered every one of those sins. And he knows every bit of faith that's in your heart and every bit of true love to him that's in your heart. He knows everything. That's my comfort. Yeah, my heart accuses. Does any of your heart accuse you? Condemn you? Yeah, it does. But what's your comfort? God knows everything. And he will not condemn those who trusted in him. He entrusts himself. He gives himself fully those who trust him. Yeah, Mike, Romans 8, 1. Yeah. There is therefore now no condemnation yeah. for those who are in Christ. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's that word. Yep. Yeah. Where's my hope? How do I know that? It's, uh, it's his comprehensive knowledge. Number five. Jesus gives himself to those who trust him. Because he does that, because he sees every ounce of true faith in our hearts, Therefore, we can not only have forgiveness of our sins, we not only confess our sins, but we can have confidence that he knows exactly what our souls need and will sovereignly keep us to the end. Because he knows it. He knows what each of us need. He's sovereignly in charge to bring it to pass. And we could go to a number of places, but I've got one minute. Flip back to John chapter 1. I want to show you one thing here. So, so encouraging. John chapter 1, we are already here. Remember, the disciples start coming to him. He engages Simon Peter. Chapter 1, verse 42. Andrew brings Peter to Jesus, and Jesus looks at him and says, So you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Peter doesn't speak a word. Jesus says, I'm going to make you into a Peter. You're just Simon, son of John. I'm going to make you Peter. Peter doesn't say anything. Jesus is committed to him. Now look back to where we just were, chapter 21. Peter failed. <laughs> true believer, true disciple, failure. Denies Christ three times. Is Jesus over with him? No. Look what he calls him in verse 15 of chapter 21. He calls him this three times. He does not call him Peter. What does he say? Chapter 21, 15. Simon, son of John. That's what he called him at the beginning. And he calls him that three times. He's saying, Simon, son of John, do you remember when I first came to you? And I said, Simon, son of John, I'm going to make you into a Peter, into a rock. Yeah, you failed. Let me remind you, you're, you're Simon, son of John. I'm still going to make you into Peter. I'm still going to do this. I'm not done with you. What I said at the beginning, I'm going to keep it to pass. And he comes to him with exactly what he needs. This is the only place in the Bible where Peter's called Simon, son of John. Beginning of John and the end. It's an intentional connection. He will keep his own. He loves his own. Because he knows our hearts thoroughly, he'll give us exactly what he needs to keep us to the end. It's good, good news. And it calls us to embrace the gospel and to trust on him from beginning to end. So his absolute knowledge is a warning against false faith. It's a motivation to run the gospel. Trust him. Love him. He's good. He sees every bit of um, faith in our hearts. So that's it. And we come to chapter 3 after this. Any questions, comments? In closing, yes. Um, Jesus knows everything, why do we need to confess our sins? It's for, for our good. So we can experience hating our sins, so we can experience putting our sins off, um, so we can recognize what our sins really are, 
And it's the way he's designed for us to lay hold of him. It's by acknowledging our sin and receiving it by faith. Really, confession, repentance, and faith are two sides of the same coin. What does it look like to trust Jesus? It looks like, I don't want this, I need you, right? How can I depend on him for mercy unless I'm confessing the thing that I need mercy for, right? So it's for our own good. Yeah, he knows it all. But it's so that we could experience grace. Yeah. I was just going to say one thing I thought of. I know people always point or often point to the signs and miracles of Jesus and say, oh, he was mainly concerned with alleviating suffering. Mm-hmm. But I think what we're seeing is obviously, I mean, he could have healed more blind people. He could have healed more sick people. His main purpose with the miracles, as you said, was yeah. to deal with the problem, yep. which is our sin. So he perceived that our greatest need was reconciliation with God. That's excellent. Yep. Yeah, but what was so crystal clear about that is the crowd comes back the second time for breakfast, mm-hmm. and he doesn't give it to them. Mm-hmm. He says, you didn't see the sign. You missed the whole point. It's not about bread. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, it's excellent. Anything else? Thoughts? Questions, comments? Yes? As he was saying, I noticed that a lot of times when he healed people, it was because they came to him in faith. He said, your faith has healed you. Excellent. Over and over. Yep. He healed a lot of those that came in faith. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Very good. All right, let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Lord, our tendency is to want to hide when we see the piercing light of your knowledge. There's no use, Lord. We confess that we are sinners, and we don't even see the depths of our sin, but we take comfort in the fact that you see it, You've dealt with it in Christ for all those who receive him for that, depend on him for that. Thank you. Thank you for the hope of mercy, for the hope of, of grace, and the hope that you will keep us. For ultimately, Lord, the faith isn't even ours. You gave it to us to begin with, and you will sustain it just like you did, Peter, to the end. I love you, Lord. Thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name.